Hi, James. Ben, how are you? The question the world is wondering, James, is how are you? Yeah, I'm better, mostly better. I got the flu and then I managed to get pneumonia, viral pneumonia, which was not much fun. And the first week I was like, I've got a really bad cold. Do you mind if we skip this week? And you were very gracious and said, no worries. And then last week I did try to power through and I jumped on. And I shut you down. I'm yeah. Like, yeah. like, you sound awful. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't good. It really wasn't good. So if you ever have the choice around getting the flu and then viral pneumonia, I highly recommend not doing it. And people say we don't give advice. Yeah, right. And helpful advice too. <laughs> so we have to admit we failed to power through, but the attempt was made. So, so we just want to get that out yeah, there. A nod to it. <laughs> well, that means we have lots of stuff to cover. Uh, I think we will not cover Uber because the point of Uber, that article is that there's nothing to talk about because they declined to release like any actionable sort of information, which is actually probably the biggest takeaway from that. But no Uber. That leaves two, which one was Microsoft and kind of talking about Microsoft in the context of the Slack and the Zoom IPOs. And then this week, Google I.O. And I think there actually might be a little bit of a thread between those two. So let's see if we can sort of uh, draw it out over the next hour or so. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. So I guess I'll quickly summarize since it's been a couple of weeks. Obviously, the links will be in the show notes, but two really sort of red hot IPOs. Well, one is an IPO, one's a direct listing. The first one is Zoom, which is an incredible company. Zoom provides basically meeting software or calling software. And what's really impressive about it is this is kind of like old school, like we're going to solve this problem better than anyone else. And we're going to win by being better. Like it just works. And it works in a way that their competitors, whether it be Skype for business, whether it be blue jeans, whether it be sort of old school offerings from Citrix, whatever it might be, it just works better than everything else. And that's why it's successful. And it's successful to the fact that they're already profitable. They're profitable and still growing. Like they're more profitable by virtue of being profitable than all of the recent sort of enterprise SaaS IPOs. And they're also growing faster than all of them. And you have a combination of already being a real money maker and also having a sky high growth rate and you're going to be rewarded very well. And they reward with a great IPO and their stock is way up even since then. It's that old saying or complaint like, oh man, there's nothing left to invent. All the good stuff's been done. You know, Facebook and Google have picked it out. What is there left to do? And there are so many opportunities just sitting around underneath people's noses. And this is a perfect example where you take something that is really common inside of businesses, this requirement, particularly as the world gets more global inside of businesses and talking to folks outside of businesses, customers, prospects, whatever it might be, and just create a great experience and solve it. And you're right, they've done a phenomenal job. The cohort analysis, otherwise known as the layer cake, I think they call it sometimes that this business has is absolutely crazy just in terms of like they get people on and then the extent to which they expand revenue inside those customers and keep adding new customers. It's very impressive. Before we move on to sort of the bigger picture, there's a couple of really interesting things to draw out about Zoom in particular. So you mentioned, you know, the cohort where they get into a company and then not only do they retain their customers, but they actually increase the revenue from those customers. So they have negative churn. And that is really emblematic of sort of the big picture SaaS idea, right? Where because it doesn't require sort of an upfront buying and installation, you just need a credit card to walk up and try it out. Or in the case of Zoom, there's a free trial that allows you to start out small to sort of come up from the bottom and 
and then sort of get widespread adoption. And with this particularly interesting about Zoom and one of the reasons why it's so valuable, and I think this is actually similar to Slack, is it has an embedded viral component by which when you conduct meetings outside of your company and you send an invitation and it's a Zoom meeting and then people get on there like, man, this worked so well. And there's all sorts of cool functionality with it. So not only is it super reliable and almost never fails, but also there's lots of cool things like sharing your screen or you can share your iPhone screen over a call trivially or there's like a whiteboard functionality and you can immediately like, wow, this is awesome. This is so much better than the stuff we use. And then you can walk up to the web and you can sign up and try out without any manager or any IT director having to approve it. And then you get in there and then you start spreading internally. That's how you get that sort of negative churn and why these companies are so valuable. And that leads to a second thing. We've talked about this sort of in passing in the past. Why did Google get so much traction back in the day? Because they were dealing with the open web, right? And there's all these web pages that were scattered over the place and you didn't need permission to sort of access them. And Google would come in and be the place to find all that information and basically drop in as sort of aggregators we talked about. But they could do that with very little friction because, you know, everything was open. And when everything is open, that's the best place where the best technology can win, right? Because it's not about getting through distribution. It's not about building connections or relationships. It's just about being the best and the best sort of comes to the fore. The more open a market is, the more important the best technology is and the more likely is that the best technology will win. And this is a reason why you should desire more open markets. This is a reason you want to get rid of sort of regulation on one side and monopolies on the other because you want more competition because that's going to produce best of breed sort of products. And what's so interesting, I wrote about this at the end of the year last year, is how the consumer and enterprise markets have really flipped. It used to be the case that the enterprise was very gated by sort of the big companies who had the established relationships with CIOs and all that sorts of thing. And so you ended up with poor products that were more a matter of getting distribution than they were a matter of actually doing the job well. And on the consumer side, you had the open web. Now today, because you have all these large companies sort of controlling people's attention and people's sort of usage, whether it be Apple or Facebook or Google or that whole set, you actually are getting less innovation and less interesting things on the consumer side. And at the same time, you've had the opposite thing happen on the enterprise side. Thanks to SaaS and thanks to this ability to sort of just walk up and try a new product and not having any gatekeepers, you're actually getting the opposite dynamic previously and the opposite dynamic of consumer today, where the better your technology is, the better you can do in the market. And Zoom is a perfect example of that. It's crazy how the dynamics of the consumer have kind of trickled into the enterprise. And I think it's in part driven by the extent to which consumers are now bringing their own consumer devices, particularly mobile devices, to work with them. But it's resulted in enterprise sales being much more like what consumer sales used to be where the company just needs to convince the individual. They need to convince the person, the individual worker, and it becomes almost this bottom up sale where instead of trying to top down with a big enterprise sales force and push software to everybody, you win an individual. And then through that, you win a team and then the team infects a business unit. Now, there are still examples where there are these big enterprise sales forces in B2B software, like that's still a thing, but more and more, and Slack is the canonical example of this, it's more and more the case that you are seeing enterprise sales happening with almost like a consumer sales motion. I would even take that one step further, though, because these companies do still have sales teams. I mean, Zoom spends a lot of money on sales and marketing. Slack spends a lot of money on sales and marketing. The difference, though, is that back in the day, that sales and marketing, it had to actually 
first get a lead and then sort of follow through. It had to convince a CIO that they had a problem, that we had a solution for this problem, and that you need to adopt this solution and you need to go through this wrenching sort of installation process and get everyone bought in and training and upkeep and all this sort of thing. Whereas today, they come in when a company is already knows about their product. So the viral nature of these products is a lead generation tool. It's a customer acquisition tool. And so sales comes in when there's already familiarity with the product. There's already desire for the product. And you can imagine how much more efficient that makes your sort of sales process, right? Because all that upfront stuff has basically been moved to a fixed cost model where you build the software. That software has a self-contained viral component that drives down dramatically your customer acquisition costs. And so you can look at your dashboard and say, wow, this company over here has 150 people using this product. Let's call them up and see if we can get the whole company on it. And you're so much further down the road that the efficiency of your sales and marketing is just dramatically better than it was before. So it's almost like a pincer movement where it used to be you had a battering ram approach to sales. Now you have this coming up under the bottom. And you know there are some companies where you come up from the bottom completely and take over the company. I think Atlassian is sort of like the extreme example of this. But even they, like their sales team is basically customer retention. Like if you're about to quit, then they'll call you. Otherwise they'll figure, you'll figure it out on your own. So that's like all the way on one extreme. But I think there's this big middle ground where companies like Slack are, where Zoom is, where they use their software and the fixed cost, zero marginal cost nature of it with this sort of freemium model to sort of acquire leads, right? And they're acquiring leads and then they bring in the Salesforce to sort of close it. And it works great. It's so fascinating. I assumed that most of these companies would just follow the Atlassian model all the way through where it would just be like, oh, we're never going to have a sales force. I met Stuart Butterfield a couple of times and he talked to me about, no, like it's actually great when we're already in there, we can go into, like you said, go speak to a CIO and say, guys, you're already using this. Why not deploy it everywhere? Because we're already above the threshold of proving that this software is being beneficial to your organization or your teams would just not be adopting it. We're clearly driving some benefit. What happens if we spread this round? And well, not just that, but they can come in and instead of saying, we're going to impose pain on you, they come and say, oh, we're going to relieve pain. You have like six different teams using Slack right now. How about we come in and put in a company-wide one that's all sort of centrally managed and you can have control and compliance controls and all those sorts of things things. So it's not just that they already have the customers in place. It's that their offering is instead of we're going to impose pain for some long-term benefit, we're actually going to relieve pain so you can more fully you know, enjoy the benefit you're already gaining. Right. I mean, the irony of that is there's a little bit of cheekiness involved in that kind of sale, which is particularly for something like a communications tool and how the SEC has regulations on maintaining records of communications and stuff. So on one hand, they're relieving pain. On the other hand, it's kind of pain that they're causing because their users have kind of cheekily gone and downloaded a communications tool while it's been off the grid that the CIO, I'm not sure that I completely sanctioned software. So on one hand, there's this little bit of like- You basically summarized the Dropbox business model, but continue. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like, okay, fine. Yeah. You shouldn't be doing this, but yeah, point well made. But it's so interesting because it effectively means that where you can adopt these viral models, it's effectively turned the enterprise into this ground where the best software wins because you're exposing it to consumer behavior. And if a video conference tool works really well, then people will adopt it. If a communications tool works really well, then people will adopt it. 
Whereas once it was this top down, the thing that determined whether it got adopted was how good to continue your metaphor, the battering ram was. Now we're in this world of it gets adopted based on how much end users enjoy using it and how much it helps solve their problems. And you get this great software like Zoom and Slack. And it's funny because I never thought that when I came to Silicon Valley, I would find the enterprise software space as fascinating as I do. But I think because of these dynamics and because it's dry driving towards really creating the best software possible, I actually find in many respects, the day-to-day of it is much more interesting than on the consumer side. Oh, by far. I mean, if I were to go back and work at Silicon Valley, I would absolutely want to work for an enterprise SaaS company just because the competitive dynamics, it's really... Yeah, to your point, it just rewards being a better company in a way that isn't the case in consumer. You know, and that's fun. If like if you want to like compete in business and you want to win and be the best, to be in a market and in an arena where the best have a good chance of winning, that's an exciting place to be. Right, totally. This, though, gets at the sort of connection to Microsoft. And I led with the fact that Microsoft broke sort of the trillion dollar market cap barrier, the third company to do so, the most valuable company in the world, and just a tremendous sort of comeback. And we've talked a lot about Microsoft. I've written about Microsoft extensively. My timing of leaving Microsoft was both good and bad. It was bad because the stock was at like $30 and I had to give up a lot of options. But it was good because I've been able to write about Microsoft for the whole course of strategy. You know, the shift that had to happen was... In some respects, obvious, but that almost makes it more impressive because it spoke to the fact there was a tremendous cultural barrier to overcome. And I documented last year in an article called The End of Windows how I really thought you know, Satya Nadella navigated that change. And it's been a tremendous shift. And so the point of this article was to take nothing from that at all. Because the reality is Microsoft does have tremendous opportunities. Like to change their worldview from one where Windows is at the center to where All computing products are their market, not just Windows, not just PCs, but also Macs, also phones, also, you know, iOS, also Android, also tablets, also whatever things might be produced in the future. And that we're going to build sort of the layer and the service layer that services all of those. And they have a very sort of cogent strategy they talked about at their conference this week. They have sort of the infrastructure layer with Azure. They have this Dynamics Power Apps layer. It's more of a platform as a service layer. They have the Office 65 at sort of the software layer. And they have things like gaming that are higher up more in the consumer side. But all of those are the same manifestation of what they're doing, which is being a service provider for everyone. And if you think about that, what's so great about it from the Microsoft perspective is it basically breeds easy fruit to pick. <laughs> I'm not sure if that makes sense as an analogy, but you know, they're still selling the same products in many respects. But suddenly, if you're offering Office as a SaaS product, well, one, you know, Microsoft spent a lot of time changing the largest enterprises to enterprise agreements where they're paying on a sort of a subscription basis instead of an annual basis. Well, now they can sort of do that much more trivially with everyone, all their customers, shift all of them away from a license basis to a subscription basis. They can not only reach the large customers that have the capability and the need to have their own servers and to install their own version of Exchange, for example, they can offer enterprise level exchange to small and medium sized businesses like that dramatically increases their market. They can now get into companies with, say, Exchange only and very trivially upsell simply by clicking a button and now you're paying more per user per month than you were before, as opposed to having to go in and do a big installation of a new version of something. And so all these SaaS dynamics have sort of created all this low hanging fruit that Microsoft is just now starting to pick. And it is absolutely justified to be super optimistic about them. 
Yeah, I 100% agree. We've talked about them a bunch. In fact, I think the Microsoft under Nadella was one of the first things we talked about on Exponent. It is just mightily impressive the way that he has navigated taking an organization that thinks about this Windows first to getting them to think about it in the way that you described and with the strategy that they brought out. I want to pull in the two by two that you talked about in your article last week. I thought it was just a fantastic way of tying together all the different aspects of these companies that we've talked about. So, And as a business school student and a former consultant, there's nothing you appreciate more than a good two-by-two. Two, my God, the consulting thing definitely cemented the two-by-two. Two. Like when you get a two-by-two two right, it's just like going out and getting a really good meal. Like you're really hungry and it's like you ordered the perfect dish. Like you can't beat a good two-by-two. Two. I really appreciated this. You had two axes. Like it had the customer relationship and on one end was existing and on the other end was new. And then you had the use case and on one end was existing and the other end was new. And the way that you described Microsoft with Teams, that was taking an existing use case with an existing customer and moving it over to a new use case for an existing customer. So that's Microsoft and like how Office 365 and Teams is expanding the use cases. But it was really interesting comparing and contrasting that with Zoom, which is obviously an existing use case, but they're having to build a completely new set of customer relationships. They are literally landing on the shores. This is the thing where they land. And we'll see about the expansion. In fact, that's something I'd like to talk about with you around Zoom. And then comparing that with Slack, which is possibly the most interesting quadrant of this, which is new use case and new customer. Now, the new customer, obviously, same case as Zoom, as they are having to create an entirely new customer base. But this notion that there wasn't really this type Type of communication, or at least this asynchronous chat type conversation across an entire organization. That may be something to do with email, but not really. And Slack basically built that for the enterprise. And just like, I don't know, I found this very useful. I wanted to bring it in. There's lots of ways, I think, to go with this. And I'd say a few things. So first off, before we get the emails, yes, what Slack offers is not new per se. The IRC has been around forever. I get that. But introducing something that was sort of a very niche application and making it broadly accessible and useful and aware to a whole order of magnitude, more number of companies and people that is new just because something existed in some form previously, but it was sort of very narrow does not diminish what it is. You know, like social networking has been around for a long time. Facebook is something different entirely. I mean, not to say that Slack is Facebook, you know, you get this sense of like, Oh, that was invented 30 years ago. Well, that doesn't matter. Like a part of invention, part of innovation is not simply the product. It's also the product and the go-to-market and all the sorts of things that sort of tie into that. So sorry, just to set that aside. But yeah, I think the point that I was getting at and the reason why I sort of put Microsoft at the center of this article about Zoom and Slack is one, there's an aspect of when a company's on top, that's the time to start looking for cracks for one. You know, I've been hyping up Microsoft's possibility and these opportunities they have for years and they came true and now is not the time to sort of pat yourself on the back. Now's the time to sort of look forward and see what's next. And to that point, it is totally right to be optimistic about Microsoft in the short to medium term because they have all this low-hanging fruit to pick that came from sort of redefining their market. And that's all totally valid. But when I think about this from a big picture strategic perspective, there's still an open question for Microsoft, which is how do they 
pick fruit that's a little bit further up that tree? How do they generate new users? Teams is very successful. It is better than Slack in lots of important ways, including things like compliance, including things like the way it ties together and integrates with all of sort of Microsoft's offerings in particular. I mean, one of the reasons that you know we started using internally here, why I like Teams is all the documents and all the things that we're working on are all in sort of one place, whereas Slack, you're sort of trying to patch together all these different sorts of things, right? So there's real value there. The problem, though, is that viral component, that lowered customer acquisition costs, that aspect where you can get into a company from the bottom and sort of work your way up. Like, where is that in Microsoft's product portfolio, particularly on the enterprise side? And that's the sort of flag I was raising here. Again, totally right to be optimized on Microsoft. They're doing everything right. But the reason I was on Microsoft to acquire Slack for years, the reason why I know they thought a lot about acquiring Zoom, and they probably should have, is Because in the very long run or the medium to long run, where is that customer acquisition engine in their product portfolio? And it's all fine and good to sort of harvest what you have. And that's a huge opportunity, but they still need to have their eyes open for what's going to be that acquisition thing in the future. It doesn't matter for the next five years, but it very well may matter for the next 10. Yeah, I mean, and it extends in lots of places, right? Like you even think about how Azure is perceived in the market. Like this is them going to their existing customer base and recognizing, well, hey, you guys are already using a whole bunch of Microsoft stuff. Let us help you take it into the cloud. It's like their default position is to take the existing customers they have. And that is the starting point for extending them into new use cases. But you compare that and the teams onboarding with the Slack onboarding. And I think it's in part because Slack and Zoom started from this position of having absolutely nothing. But because they weren't starting with this massive customer base, they had to figure out the viral component and they had to be able to go out and speak to startups and figure out like how underserved customers were missing out and how to reach those customers super easily in very low friction ways and get them on board. That's not a problem that Microsoft has had for a very long time. And it then gets reflected in the go-to markets of these respective organizations. Yeah. And what's interesting is it's definitely fair to also be skeptical of both Slack and Zoom in sort of the very long run, right? Because the fact of the matter is it's one thing to grow like a weed when you're mostly targeting companies that are not like in the Microsoft web, for example, right? But at some point, you're also going to run out of low-hanging fruit. And then what do you have to offer? And this is where I think the two-by-two is sort of also interesting. You think about something like Zoom, like they started with an existing use case, but there's lots of things in the product that have pushed into new use cases. Again, I talked about things like the iPhone screen sharing or stuff along those lines or the whiteboarding, things that are, again, yes, they've existed in theory previously, but to actually make them accessible and easily useful for lots of people is real innovation. And so they can expand out of that quadrant that they were in into other ones. I think you'd see a similar thing with Slack where, yes, it's kind of a new use case, new sort of customer relationship, but they can start pushing into other use cases, existing use cases, right? I I mean, one of the compelling things about Slack that is very useful, I think, particularly on the sort of developer angle is not necessarily the communication, but sort of all the notifications and the cataloging, like what's happening with all your different services and having it all in one place. Well, that used to all be sort of email, right? These automated emails that you would get and just fill up your inbox and you couldn't like shut them off because you still need to see them, but it wasn't the right place or the right sort of format to sort of have that. And that's actually backing into sort of an existing use case. And I think the challenge here and the question for Microsoft is you can see how they went 
from existing use case to new use case with their existing customers? Can they break up into that top part? Can they break into the new use case? I think it's a harder direction to go than to sort of drop down, as it were. But that drop down is still an open question when it comes to you know these other companies. I agree with everything you said. I might take a slightly different frame, which is, do you think Microsoft in a battle of onboarding startups, whether a startup starting from fresh would be fine, Microsoft's offering so compelling that they would choose it over some other combination of technologies? And I think that's where they need to win. Now, you can see that happening with Slack and Zoom. And I'm also really interested in where the Zoom and Slack goes. I'm a little bit more bullish about Slack in the long run from this perspective. Zoom does feel like, yes, it's a in an open web, like the best technology wins, but they also have a very deep expertise in a specific type of technology that I worry might limit their ability. If you think about this as a land and expand, to expand, it doesn't naturally lend itself to expanding into lots of other places. Whereas Slack, this is like one of the first things that people get set up. And like you said, like there's a catalog of software that gets connected into it. You could start to see them moving in some very interesting directions, given they enter into an employee's journey into an organization. And it might actually be a natural place to do a bunch of different things as a result. So one point that I've made, and we talk about enterprise software again and again, is there's a real opportunity yet unseized to be sort of the operating system of the cloud enterprise, where you're sort of sitting in the middle of everything and everything sort of connects through you. And that ties into not just being uh, the fabric that everyone uses, but also it's a way into things like identity. It's a way into things like stores or being a platform for lots of other stuff. And frankly, I'm frustrated with Slack because I think they've seen this opportunity. They just seem to have moved so slowly over the last couple of years. And Microsoft absolutely sees that opportunity. And like I said, one of the things that makes teams better than Slack right now is from an actual chat experience, it's not even close. I mean, Slack is infinitely better to use, but Teams definitely has that vision of being a central hub, of being the operating system in the cloud in a way that Slack has not really demonstrated. And I think that's a real open question for Slack. And can they execute that on their own? Can they execute that as an independent company? They've done a lot of talk and done all these sort of integrations, but they're so geeky and so nerdy and hard to figure out. I think for most people, Slack is all about just being easy to chat and put emoticons in, which, you know, hilariously, Teams is kind of bad at. But you can see the enterprise mindset behind Teams. And I mean that in a positive sense, like a real understanding of the problems that people are facing and being explicitly engineered to address that. And you could also see all the weaknesses of a traditional enterprise company building sort of like customer facing software. Again, this is the beautiful thing about seeing these enterprise companies play out. And it kind of makes sense because Slack started with like targeting small, particularly engineering and small startup type companies. And they probably weren't thinking about anything beyond like, let's get initial product market fit. And then they've grown into it. And now they're like starting to think about how to build the muscle of growing out into this broader vision and everything related to that. And that's tough. Whereas Microsoft is the other way around, which is like, okay, they're very good at seeing this vision because they see these customers that they have and given their history, what the potential for this could be, but then figuring out how to make that product so it's easy and delightful to use such that people actually like it. And there's going to be this meeting in the middle and it's going to be very interesting to watch that play out. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's interesting to think about these companies and sort of like the life cycle sort of idea, right? I mean, Microsoft has obviously sort of gone around the wheel and back again, where Slack and Zoom are sort of at the beginning of their journey. And Google also had their developer conference this week. And one thing that was striking about that conference was, I mean, I wrote an introductory about Google's sort of confidence in their vision, you know, all this debate about tech companies and data and privacy. And their conference is basically like, yeah, we collect a ton of data and you're happy about it because we create the super cool stuff that you want to use. But despite the fact that you think about a world of voice assistance, it's like, yeah, Google's going to win. But what is that win worth? And relative to winning on the web, it's such a smaller win. It's so much more difficult to achieve. You have things like you have to get distribution, right? How do you get Google Assistant on the iPhone? Well, you can have the Google app, but that's a big pain to get into. It's not sort of a default thing. And so they're kind of locked out from a huge portion of the population, just like distribution problems are harder. The actual like computer science is harder. You know, I'm not saying search was easy by any means, but you know, Google by virtue sort of figuring out how to get it done, put themselves in a position where they could iterate it. And yes, they have that with voice, but still there's a lot of things to figure out about when people are going to use it. When's it going to be fast enough? And you know, they showed things that were moving that direction, but I would say it's a harder problem both from a technological perspective and a use case perspective. And they have a monetization challenge. Like the thing about search that people don't appreciate is the auction format. One, people are saying what they want, but two, that auction format maximizes the price that they get. And also companies are willing to pay more than the value of one click because of the opportunity to establish a relationship with the customer and have sort of increased lifetime value, right? Yes, assistant could have like a single suggestion or they could have a default sort of offering, but the value of that and how much it's worth is just way lower than any search ad's going to be. Just if you think about the dynamics of how the pricing works and what these companies are actually paying for, you know, an affiliate model is less valuable than one where you can sort of get a customer for the long run. And so you think about it, there's all this fruit available in this space. It's not low hanging by any means. It's sort of a much tougher challenge. But one of the big advantages that Google has is that 10 years ago, or however long it's been, they bought YouTube. And guess what? YouTube is growing like crazy. It's growing both the consumption, it's growing its advertising. Google ought to disclose it. I'm not sure why they don't, but we know they have this big growth engine that is really paying off today as they transition their main business. And it was a decision that was made a long time ago. And if you think about that in the context of what I was writing about with Microsoft, I'm thinking about what is Microsoft's YouTube going to be when their current low-hanging fruit that they have today is picked? Like when the new challenge comes along and yes, they did very well to get back to a world of low hanging fruit, but they're going to pick it. Like that's what's going to happen and what's going to be their engine five or 10 years down the road, because you have to start thinking about that today. It's such a great point. You're actually reminding me of some of the work that Jeffrey Moore did on Horizons and he terms three Horizons and Horizon one being basically the most immediate financial period and making sure that your numbers are looking good during that period. Horizon two is basically the next generation of high growth opportunities that need to be in the pipeline. And Horizon three is germinating stuff off in the future. And it's really important to make sure that you have different projects at different stages And it's not enough just to focus on one of these stages, because if you wait until you need new growth to make the investment in new growth, it's going to be too late. Like you've got to give these things time to germinate. And you're right. Like Google's decision to buy YouTube is now paying dividends. It's growing like crazy. And that gives them the opportunity to do what they did at the keynote this week. And it was fantastic. It was great to see a tech company actually double down on its 
strength and say, you know what, this is the way that we make the world a better place and we're going to do it. And you're right about distribution and it's going to be extremely tricky for them to get distribution, particularly with the world looking the way it does with Apple having such a big share in the mobile space, for example. At the same time, like if they do enough of these things and they get it right, you can start to see them shifting that world where this is the type of technology that only Google could create. And that if they get enough of it and they get it good enough, it's the kind of thing where you start to say, gosh, you know, I do like the interface that my iOS device offers, but this assistant where it actually calls up or books things for me, that's the kind of thing that would get me to switch devices. So 100% hear you, but it's like, they've got to do it anyway. And the point around them having YouTube already firing on all cylinders is exactly right. Yeah. And and frankly, this goes to show why iMessage is so valuable and will never be on Android. Like it's critical to Apple right now. And if you think about what's the reason to be worried about Apple, it's like, I mean, they have the wearables, I think is hugely underrated as far as a driver for Apple in the long run. But when we were writing about this sort of stuff, we're talking about this sort of stuff with Apple a few years ago, this is why, right? You can see iPhone growth slowing and then what comes next, right? I mean, that's when I wrote that they should buy the Netflix thing. And the entire point there, you know, you kind of mentioned this is it's not just that you don't want to buy stuff until you're desperate or build stuff once you're desperate. It's that you end up killing the stuff that you buy or build when you are desperate because you're desperate. You don't give it the resources it needs. You push it into market too soon. You try to make it a revenue driver too quickly. And that's why in 2016 was the time to buy Netflix because the iPhone was going to stop growing in 2019. For Microsoft, the time to think about what happens once they finish riding this growth wave of SaaS is today. Because in five years, years, if they're locked into their existing customer base, sure, they're making all kinds of money off them. But if they don't have a reliable engine to acquire those new companies, just as time goes on, the share of companies that are net new to the world are going to be larger than those that grew up on Microsoft and were sort of locked in. And again, none of this is a criticism of where they are, what they're at. Microsoft people got very upset about this article this week, but it's kind of reflective of Apple people getting very frustrated a few years ago when you would say Apple needs to change something. The moment when you're on top is the moment you most need to be thinking about where you're going to be in a few years, because that's the time you have the freedom and the opportunity to invest in the future. That was so perfectly articulated. It's almost as if, look at our results, look at how well we're doing. We're a trillion dollar market cap. Why aren't you saying nice things about us? It's like, that's great, guys. You now have the luxury to go out and start to build the future. And the problem's going to be if you don't do it now, it's a time frame type issue as well. And sometimes these CEOs aren't thinking about being around in five years' time. And so if they leave the cupboard, bear, like they don't invest in these future organizations. In some senses, it bolsters the results right now because you're not investing, you're not taking money away that could be returned to shareholders or whatever. If you're not investing, it looks like you're doing even better right now. The problem is someone in five years time is going to realize that the growth of what you're doing is running out and they're going to reach up to look in the cupboard and say, okay, what's going to be the next act? And the cupboard's going to be bare. And that is a really bad feeling. Right. And to be clear, like we don't know what's going on inside these companies. We don't know what sort of investments they are making, what sort of products they are building. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't either sort of raise the alarm a little bit. And I think here's one more place where the Microsoft example is a useful one. I think Microsoft has always had a 
it's better if we build it than if we buy it sort of approach. They've been probably not as acquisitive as they should like. And I'm talking about their entire history, like their 40-year history. And you saw that with teams, right? You can see that there's going to be a real temptation to feel validated about that because Teams is doing well. But again, Teams is doing well in the context of leveraging Microsoft's sort of existing user base. I don't see the sort of customer acquisition cost advantages the viral component to Teams that addresses this issue that I have, right? So that's part one. Part two is I always tend to be biased towards acquisitions when it comes to thinking about large companies and strategy. The fact of the matter is building a product that resonates is very, very hard, particularly in the consumer space. But I've always argued that companies are better off acquiring than they are sort of building because to get a lot of consumers, there's some aspect of catching lightning in a bottle. You don't build a sales force to acquire consumers, right? It has to sort of spread virally. It has to be adopted organically. There's just too many consumers out there. And so that's why, for example, Facebook buying Instagram was so smart, leaving aside sort of the antitrust reasons. Well, that's why those mattered. And why Facebook trying to mimic Snapchat was dumb and trying to buy Snapchat was smart. Because to get that core insight and to get that initial sort of adoption is unbelievably difficult in the consumer space. In the enterprise space, though, it what's traditionally been different. You can usually leverage your lock-in with customers, leverage your relationship to build your good enough product and then knock out sort of the challenger because they don't have distribution. They don't have access, right? And again, as I just noted, that's what Microsoft has kind of done with Teams. The problem is the more that enterprise acquires these consumer characteristics, the more I think enterprise companies need to let go of their let's leverage our distribution and build it ourselves and be more open to sort of an acquisitive sort of approach when it comes to thinking about growth. Because again, the more it's like consumer, the more we have to have a sort of consumer mindset and the consumer mindset for large companies companies ought to be focused on acquisitions. Yeah, totally. Said differently, Microsoft's already got a great muscle in terms of getting more money out of existing customers. What Microsoft doesn't have a good muscle around is figuring out ways of how to acquire new customers. And thinking about acquisitions through that lens, it would almost behoove them to identify a few of these companies that are doing it. The reason not to do this is you tend to overpay because by the time it becomes obvious to everyone that these guys are onto something, that they're very hot and then everybody wants in and it becomes very expensive. But the beauty of having a trillion dollar market cap is you have a lot of firepower to go out and acquire them. To paraphrase what I'm hearing you say is like, use that firepower to help build this muscle of new customer acquisition. You said they need to let go a little bit of this notion of getting or building things internally to take advantage of their existing customers. I actually might frame it slightly differently. It's almost like these are separated business units. And part of one job is to bring the people in. And once you've got them in, there's another job of getting more money out of them. Almost how sales forces are organized, like some go out, you've got your traditional salespeople who go out and break into these organizations. But then you can sometimes have reps that are responsible for retention and expansion. And it's almost like they have excellent retention and expansion. And that's great because they have a, a lot of customers. But a Eventually, like you said, there's going to be a world in which the new companies that are formed outsize, outnumber the existing companies that exist today, and they have to start building that muscle of getting into the new companies now. 
Yeah. And the other thing to remember is, yes, you may overpay, but you're plugging in this product and this engine to your distribution, right? So you get the best of both worlds. Now, there's other challenges. Like, for example, one of the reasons why I think Teams is a pretty compelling product is it's so deeply integrated with the rest of what Microsoft offers. It's so compelling. It actually makes SharePoint a decent product, which is mind blowing. But there's a real value there. And the problem is when you acquire it, I think Microsoft's a little scarred by this from some of the acquisitions they've done. They spend so much time trying to build up that integration that the product just kind of languishes in the market. But just because you sort of screwed up before doesn't mean you have to do it again. I think about things like Yammer or Skype along those lines. To be clear, Microsoft has done some really smart acquisitions. I think one that was really great, we talked about a year ago, I can't remember if we podcast at the time, but was GitHub. And what is compelling about GitHub is you buy GitHub and it's like, what's the business model? Where do you make the revenue? It doesn't matter. Because that is a long term, that's down the horizon sort of acquisition where you're building a funnel to developers all over the world. And you're starting to see that start to pay off where the sort of traction of not just Microsoft, but things like their code editor, VS Code is like one of the most widely used editor in the world. Within all of these, there's sort of links and hooks into Azure, for example. Like you talked about Azure before. Yes, Azure is primarily focused on this sort of hybrid use case in existing companies, but now they have a channel to developers all over the world. Now, to be clear, you can use GitHub and you can use code with AWS or whatever. It's totally agnostic in that regard, but don't undervalue just the chance to get in front of customers. Right. And nudge people. Right. Exactly. It's super valuable. And that's the exact sort of acquisition as a trillion dollar company they should be making. One that is not going to drive revenue today, but is a customer acquisition tool in the long run. And I mean, like you said, you could easily see how Zoom or Slack would play into acquisition for Office 365. So yes, like you can see how GitHub fits into Azure. What's the analog for Office 365? And yeah, maybe because it's a subscription, the trial cost is relatively low, but I think that's not the same as having a viral element built in that these two other companies have demonstrated, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, maybe the ship is sailed that. I mean, whatever they're going to pay today is drastically larger than they would have paid a few years ago. I think they could have got Slack for like seven billion a few years ago or something like that. That's not going to be the case today. But, you know, this is where, to your point, I think you mentioned this before, this is where a CEO really earns their money is not sort of taking advantage of low-hanging fruit. I think there's an aspect of that. You want to execute well, but it's having the discipline and the vision to do something counterintuitive, to do something that doesn't necessarily make sense for today, but because there is a path to tomorrow and you want to make sure you have what you need to sort of walk down that path. Really, we are criticizing or critiquing at the extremes because like, it still blows my mind what Satya Nadella has been able to do in terms of turn the Microsoft ship around in terms of the priorities that the company had around Windows and just now how it seems to be so wonderfully well aligned around this new strategy. And like that in and of itself is an incredible accomplishment. That being said, when you think about folks that seem to have done an incredible job of being two moves in front and just at the right time, seeming to have the right set of assets for like where the puck has gone and they just seem to have scaled to it perfectly. And we talked about them a few weeks ago, Bob Iger at Disney, just in terms of the way that he's like managed to build up those set of acquisitions to position the company such that when they needed to start to change the way they think about strategy, they had the right set of assets to be able to do it. Bob Iger's done an incredible job at that. 
Yeah, that's true. And this is going to be the, a real test for Nadell. I mean, I think he's obviously already extremely successful, but we know he's clearly very good at changing culture. But again, remember what Microsoft needed to do was pretty obvious. I mean, I wrote an article in 2013 right after I had left Microsoft. It was great. And all this material sort of built up. It was entitled Services, Not Devices. And my entire point was Microsoft needs to get out of this vertical mindset and embrace this sort of horizontal approach, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but I wasn't the only one sort of saying this. And you could see this even back then. The real accomplishment here is not necessarily the vision. The accomplishment is to shepherd that cultural change internally. And so we know he can do that. The question now, what we're talking about is vision, is seeing down the road and is putting the pieces in place today to take advantage of that. And it's a completely different skill set. It's going to be a completely new kind of test for Nadella specifically and Microsoft generally. Yeah. And you know what? Your two by two just brings it to light perfectly, like a good meal. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm glad we were able to recover. I would like to think it was the two by two that really gave you the spark and the life to come back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was ready to podcast last week on the back of that two by two, Ben. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. Anyhow, I'm glad you are feeling better. It's good to have you back. This is a fun topic to talk about. So we are back on it. Yeah, and it sounds good. And assuming no more viral pneumonia, we will be back next week as well. Oh, it sounds good. I'll talk to you soon. See you, mate. Have a good one. Yeah, bye-bye.